Fuck lightsabers, Paul. Indeed, fuck lightsabers. Should we, should we leave the episode there and, and wish everyone a happy new year? <laughs> Job done, really. But uh, now that we've established that, established that, let's actually instead, folks, focus on the cinema that we know you like and that we like. Cinema that actually means something. The Mule, Virunga, Petit Cancan, Wood Job, Attila Marcel, Force Majeure, Kumikai the Treasure Hunter, It Follows, Phoenix and Timbuktu. Which of these films will win? the film of 2015 for me and for Paul perhaps one of those will win potentially two welcome along everybody a quick reminder that you can expect full spoilers this time out so if you're inclined to watch any of the films in that little info box for this episode aka the films I've just read out then uh, do so now or forever hold your peace and also the rules quick reminder of those because we've got some new listeners this year of course only films that were on the podcast can count Furthermore, they must have been mine, Paul, or Joint Film of the Week. And finally, they must have been released in the cinema, on disc, at a film festival, or nominated for an award ceremony in the year 2015. Therefore, Paul, we're going to break the rules straight away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, of course, it makes perfect sense for us to start off with an exception to that rule. Uh, This film went straight to iTunes in 2014. But we'll let it off since it was obviously never given a fair crack of distribution. And also because it's actually quite good. So Paul, season's greetings. Season's greetings to you. And if you will, please introduce us with The Mule. The Mule is an Australian film about a first-time drug mule who is caught by law enforcement. And it's a kind of a, a kind of petty criminal, working-class family guy. He's a bit of a loser. He's exploited by a local kind of drug baron who runs a bowling alley and is is very kind of violent. And this guy's a bit of a loser, got a a shit car and his life's a bit of a dead end. And they say to him, because they see him as an opportunity to to either set him up if it all goes wrong or that that he will be sort of deemed uh, not worth uh, approaching because he's too stupid looking to, to do drugs. And so he, he goes to, I can't remember which country, Thailand or one of the Far East countries, gets a load of drugs and then he imports them. Uh, and the key process through which he imports them, once he feels he's going to be caught, is by eating them, mm. uh, putting them down into his stomach, uh, wrapped in condoms or those kind of sheets. And then he gets back and they think, uh, the local law enforcement think, headed by uh, Hugo Weaver, Weaving, who oh, I think is excellent, and yeah. I, I think he makes really good films. And he goes back to Australia and New Zealand and makes them there as well, as well as in Hollywood and in England. So it's to his credit. And and then it becomes a waiting game for to see if he will produce the drugs. And and that's it. The Speculate that, to accumulate the defecates. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And uh, there are some. <laughs> particularly gruesome <laughs> moments uh, but it but it's very funny it's nicely timed it's got a, an excellent pace it, it feels a perfect length and it and it, it links in with a, a moment of australian history as well when they won the america's cup yeah. which is on the television which goes on for days and days and days which is what they're waiting for for him to potentially defecate up the drugs and uh there's there's the, the the kind of the other person who exploited him who also wants the drugs as well as the law enforcement people and then he's building a relationship with with a woman as well at the same time but it, it it's it's a perfect little film it is indeed uh i can't add too much more but i'll, I'll try anyway uh it's your best film on this list 
And more importantly, I think it's the best film you've contributed to the entire podcast, Paul. <laughs> Bearing in mind that I had no films from yourself that made it onto the list this time. This actually counts as one, even if it was joint film of the week. Uh, when you look at the cast, and this is... For me, this is kind of the biggest surprise of the year for me. But again, straight to iTunes, doesn't always mean... In fact, very rarely means anything at all. When you look at the cast, it's mostly nothing but mediocre TV film actors mm-hmm. and people who have had smaller cameos and bigger things, local Australian soaps as well. Um, but absolutely, for me, everybody performs well above their station here. That includes the writers, the producers and the director because the end result is quite, quite magnificent. I don't like slow-paced thrillers mm-hmm. or fast-paced thrillers for that matter. This is kind of a perfect balance of both. There's, it's slow enough for you to enjoy it, for there to be a proper narrative, for you to you know, really get behind the characters. But it's fast Ooh. enough so you don't get bored and for, for, for them to introduce lots of little things quickly and then move on so you don't get bored of those either. It's dramatic, there's significant tension. There's original things, and that's one of the things that impressed me the most. There are little things in this film that, I ha- that I've never seen before in this kind of genre, really. There's humour, both local and for a more Western audience. I particularly love the Australian racism which to us is a bit ghastly, really. Mm-hmm. Just taking the piss out of Vietnamese slash Thailand slash Eastern Asian names. But for the Australian audience, that's what they're all about. It's their humour. Yep. It's part of them now being, not officially, but practically Asian in every way. Um, there's stuff about class, which you talked about, sailing boats. There's a really nice thing about Australian sport in there to do with class. The America's, the America's Cup versus... Um, Aussie rules mm-hmm. that gets debated amongst even policemen and even him having the, having the drugs. Nice touch that wasn't really necessary, but lots of little things like that just added up to make it just a quite brilliant film. The twist I didn't see coming, and uh, again we've warned you, so you know you've been told um, hiding the drugs in the back of the television. Of course, it being one of the old televisions where you had to bang it on the top to work. This time you had to bang it to work because the drugs are interfering with the signal inside the TV, so they had to be dislodged uh, discreetly. Uh, quite massively done, actually. I really didn't see that coming. I totally loved it, pretty much in every way. The bigger, again, the biggest surprise of the year by far, and this is a real contender for me. Well, and when you consider it's basically the core of the film is waiting for someone to have a shit. <laughs> and we've often said, oh, how great would it be if this actor would direct that person taking a shit and it would still be good. Absolutely. This is actually the thing in real life. And I think we need to mention Angus Sampson, who is, yes. who's, who's the star, the writer and a co-director. And, and he's brilliant. He's very, very good. Perfectly timed. Bit of a loser, waster in is it the character. It's just so perfect. And he's actually kind of going up to do more important. I say more important, because this was, there's nothing more important than a perfect film. But I think, uh, yeah, he's moved on to a bit more money, I think, he's in America and stuff. And well, let's so, hope that doesn't ruin him as it does so many. I th- indeed not, but uh, stand on the bright side, let's hope he doesn't. But uh, still, The Mule, it's on iTunes, it's there. Help yourself to it, folks. Uh, Virunga. Now, this is our first bit of conflict on the podcast. Indeed. Without doubt. Virunga is a documentary about the oldest wildlife park in Africa and the battles it faces locally, nationally and internationally. As I alluded to on another podcast, Paul, I cried twice during this because I love animals. So to see their lives as civil war takes place around them, how it affects them and also the rangers. Thousands have died still, and, are, and many are still dying trying to protect this thing. From who? 
Well, you've got at the time of recording, it was the M23 Rebellion, uh, a local rebel group in the Congo. Internationally, you've also got Soko, who are, who are a British American stock exchange company that want the oil from directly underneath the nearby water reserves of uh, Burunga National Park. We also see how the organisation has uh, that organisation has used local politics to its benefit by siding with the rebels. It would quite like some of the wealth for their own means to uh, fund their acts against the political centre. It's up there for me as a documentary, but I think we've established that. Uh, there's nothing more that I personally want to learn or can learn from this, in my view. It tells me where to find Soka, where to look out for them, uh, particularly, for example, checking a pension plan to make sure that your company that you work for hasn't signed up to a pension plan that contributes towards Soka. It obviously tells me where to work and go to help protect the park to find out more information which is what this documentary is really about uh, which I'm also doing monthly um, I'm very glad it, it tells me that the documentary made an impact as a result of it being made because uh, as a result of Emmanuel de Moraud, the Belgian uh, head of the park as a result of him getting shot he insisted that the documentary went ahead and be shown to the world it was Netflix bought exclusivity and uh, as a result of this, Soko's case to act as they please in the Congo has been not eradicated, because you can't really ever fully do that, but at least considerably diminished. So, for me, it's emotional. It does manipulate, but then again, what film doesn't? It does its job entertaining, informing. I loved it. I loved Virunga. Well, I think, as we know, I don't... Uh... And it's it's very interesting. You've added a whole new load of stuff to your 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 review of it that actually counters what I say, which I think adds to it if people follow through like you're saying that you do and and have done. But the film core doesn't do that in the sense that it doesn't politicise it enough both to the individual and to collective governments of what needs to be done to stop multinational corporations destroying individual reserves individual countries individual continents and 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 the planet as a political tool uh, you have chosen i think to become very political in relation to this and that's excellent but the film doesn't do that you've added that to that and that is its core weakness i think when i when we first did this i called it an obscenity because it didn't do that in any significant degree. You've taken away from that something you want to do because you really care, and that's brilliant. But I don't think it does enough of that politicising of a core issue that will lead to the eventual demise of the guerrillas and of that, that environment, and that's the tragedy of the film. I think at one point one of the uh, activists in it said, I'm afraid that people will watch this and then just go back to eating their breakfast and reading the newspaper or going on to the next documentary. And I think she summed it up that that's what this will do. And I think the idea at the end that it turns into a charity, and it's a difficult one with, with charity because, like, you know, you can go to the website and donate, etc. Charity is all well and good because, you know, often no one else is going to do it. But for real change, you need that political engagement, which you are now doing but which this film fails to encourage and identify in any significant degree for me. That's fair enough, but what I would also say is 
I don't know what this film could actually have done about that issue because I don't think many films actually do. The whole nature of charity is the depoliticalisation of it. It just wants your money and it wants it now. Nothing else matters in terms of giving money to people. You look at, for example, you look at children in need in this country, Red Nose Day. There are reasons why these things are happening, but none of them get explored. It's just about phone this number, give us your money. And it's the same year after year after year. And the point for this thing is that it's the same year after year. International organisations come and go. Militians come and go. Just give us your money. But equally, those things that you've just described are even more obscene. And, and a crime <laughs> against humanity, children in need. Telethons, they're a crime against Indeed. people's rights. Uh, and and that, that's a shame. Don't get me wrong, this isn't as bad as children in need, and all that, which, are, which are true crimes against humanity. Uh, uh, but... Uh, but and again, and I think if it, if if you really care and get involved, you can make a difference. And I think you you're showing that you can do that. And again, looking up your pension plan. But equally, to some extent, we're all guilty, and that's where it doesn't deliver by saying every time you fill up your car with an ounce of petrol or diesel, you're killing the planet and contributing to the demise of this environment, this individual one and this collective one. And it didn't get that, the, the kind of true power of that. And partly because of the sentimentalisation of the animals. And, and so that's why I really, but really... that's all that people it. generally respond to. They don't respond to, don't use your car, because people need to use the car. Well, in a way, I think this is, this is a shame, because I think people would really buy into this one. Which is which gives it the opportunity. People to, did to to give it that extra emphasis, to push it that bit further, to bring it to the individual, to bring it to the political, and bring it to the kind of national political scene. Like I said before, if you want to stop this, if a politician stands up and their party say we will make sure that Sacco never have anything to do with any British company, and another politician who stands up and says we'll deal with anybody, which is often the kind of polarised you get. Or in politics, then you'll get real change. I this just, this I, won't achieve that, and that's its tragedy. Oh, but I just think because it, it, I wish it did, and I wish it would be and do what you want it to do, but it won't. It's not a tragedy for me purely because it, it, it knows that that would be far and above beyond its station. Really, it, this, especially this, has got no chance of doing doing it by itself. It well, needs everybody's help, and to some extent, that's its credit, and that's what I, I suppose I did fail to say last time. Actually, because I think this becomes, this comes very close to being able to deliver that bigger picture, that that's why I was so yeah. disappointed in it. Most don't even try. And so I am being very harsh on this, but because it became so close, and, and, that, to, yeah. and that's interesting. But uh, again, like the individual side of it, I mean, we, we, have, we have, if we were to use a less extreme example than this, we've, we've all been told that, for example, Amazon don't pay tax, neither do Starbucks, and that has a, has an effect on on various things, not just not locally, but also you know where they where they outsource their products from and all the rest of it. We both use Amazon. We don't necessarily both drink a Starbucks, but millions and millions of people do. They know this information. They don't give a toss. They still chuck their money. At, they just do what they want to do. We we get told every day that petrol's bad for the environment. So we're not, all complicit. Exactly. Exactly. So and, if, if absolutely, what, what can we honestly actually do? What do we do as a Western as a Western audience? We just chuck money at things to try and exonerate our guilt, if you will. 
And that's what this this does no worse, no better than anybody else. Well, so. I think it does it better, and I think that that's to its credit. It does do it better. It does internationalise it. It does, but it just didn't do it enough for me. And I think that's why that's why you liked it so much. Yeah. And that's why I was just so disappointed in it. Betty Kanka. Betty Kanka. Uh, oh, little Queen Queen. Little Queen Queen. As, as I'll let you call it since you detest the French name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is basically a never ending murder <laughs> You've mystery. You've got that. We'll agree on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a never ending uh, murder mystery <laughs> of who's stuffing dead parts of humans into dead animals. Indeed. Uh, and that's the core of it. And, and pig eating, uh, human, uh, pig eating of humans. Uh, it's originally it was a TV series, but made as also to be released as a film, and so consequently it is knocking on uh, four hours. And I think particularly if you watch the TV series with the adverts, it's about five hours. But but they're virtually exactly the same whether you see the cinema release. Uh, and it's basically about a kind of twitchy, kind of half-witted local policeman who's investigating the these kind of random murders in uh, near Calais, between Calais and Boulogne, uh, in a kind of very rural community. So it explores a lot about class, uh, about local politics, about the nature of living in a kind of rural community as opposed mm-hmm. to kind of metropolitan. Uh, and and the, the performances are wonderful. It, the, it's about this little kid who's got a kind of cleft palate and a scarred face who sort of just wanders around on his bike, doesn't do anything, he's a bit thick, uh, who quite likes the girl across the road, who's from a bit more of a, a bourgeois family. The the older sister of the bourgeois family gets eaten by pigs. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it is as surreal as that. So in a way, there's no point in trying to describe what happens because both nothing happens because it's incredibly long, and there's a lot of ambling about, wandering about, riding bikes in country lanes, bizarre scenes of the ceremonies of Bastille Day, of twirling kind of cheerleader girls, who are the ugliest bunch of people you will see ever, combined with mayoral kind of politicking and pressure, and, and then more random murders... Uh, and then the random arrest of people, being from the the guy with cerebral palsy who lives on the the farm with uh, Petit Kinkin, uh, followed by a whole plethora of random pointless things in old Second World War bunkers on the beach, finding grenades, and, and it is as pointless as that. But I thought it was a masterpiece. For me, it's just a ridiculously crap product, really. You've, 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 you've said a lot of words that are kind of sit well with me. Pointless, nothing, and things of that ilk. It's a very existentialist film. Nothing happens in it. I'm quite believe, you know, as I've said, I think, I'm quite happy to sit there and watch nothing for the sake of art, but this is not even an art piece for me. There's no distinctive style to it. No outstanding features with any regard, either in terms of the production or the execution of the film. So it's shot on the French coast. So fucking what? It's not like Leviathan or Of Horses and Men, which we brought up last time we talked about this film, where the surroundings are almost like an additional character. You know, here it isn't. And also, the main characters themselves have traits that kind of get shoved into your, shoved into your face until you're bored to the point of death, really. None of the characters go through any sort of development. The story doesn't develop. 
They're all kind of, I would say, cardboard cutout models of French weirdness, randomness and boringness. Which is the point, as you kind of said yourself, mm-hmm. which kind of, again, leads me to the main reason why I hate this film so much. The fact that it was made, you know, as you pointed out, looking so inwardly at itself as a, as a nation of film, trying to decipher what it needs to do to get back to, if you will, the glory days, or at least rediscovering its personality. Again, fuck them. And it. Well, except, I think the key thing to point out, uh, and again, not that that makes them necessarily genius, but the Film Critics Association, particularly Cathode de Cinema, which is the great French cinema film, this was their film of the year. And so... And, and I can see why. Uh, and, I really can. Absolutely. And, and so I think it is a, it is a, it's not going to be my film of the year, but it is a true masterpiece... Uh, you have to be patient. I think it does have its own logic, which is the randomness of life. And and I think that's where, to many people, it will let themselves down in relation to th- things like Leviathan or Winter Sleep. There isn't really any point, because that's the point it's making. Yeah. There really isn't any point. Uh, combined with little elements of French identity, of French cinema identity... And so I think it's just a perfect cinematic experience, particularly of kind of French existentialist nothingness. Mm-hmm. It is, definitely, uh, without perfect. Um, but for me, this is, uh, believe me, that's not, oh yeah, again, I'm, it's not a message that's in my life. Don't really, as I say, fuck that message. But all right, you want to have that message. I think it's a kind of a slight on pretty much all the other films that French-wise that we've seen, really, because I, I, I wouldn't say that Attila Marcel is a second-grade Hollywood film with a French accent. Neither would I say Realité is by Quentin Dupieux that you made me watch. I thought that was excellent. Again, not a Hollywood film in any way. Neither is the Danny Boone film that you made me watch last year. Or, I, for example... I also Which you quite liked. I, I loved it. Or at least the first half of it. Yep. <laughs> As you look at me. Uh, or even something like Blue is Warmest Colour. Not necessarily a Hollywood film. It's It's got a French a bit of French pizzazz to it. So for me, why don't you just support the young filmmakers, review those films in your bloody magazine a bit more, edu- and therefore educate people, educate the French people about cinema properly. If it ain't working, tough. That's life. Well, but don't think that three hours of nothingness will help your cause, because it just won't. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> It's a masterpiece. Mm. Wood job. Wood job. For my money, it's the best Japanese film of the year. And we've seen quite a few good ones. It's been a good year for Japanese cinema. Uh, Yuki is a student who, after failing his university entrance exams, refuses to follow his classmates into a life of taking the piss and instead opts to go to a forestry training programme after seeing a beautiful woman's face on a leaflet. Paul, this is, for me, another strong contender. It, as we said to, as, as at the time, as we say, pretty much for every quality Japanese product that we do on this podcast, it tackles pretty much everything we've ever seen before and, and, and well. Class, in this one, city versus the countryside, historical artefacts versus the need to modernise. Ultimately, what Japanese people need to do to get out of the misery, out of the restrictions that everyday society puts on them living in Japan from outside their families, as well as within. How does director Yaguchi do this? By making you smile with lots of humour, by making your eyes stay wide awake with lots of beautiful shots, lots of beautiful shots about the forests. The people capturing the ugliness of the city 
And of course, that side of human nature in the city versus obviously the opposite in the countryside. But for me, what stands out the most about this is that probably more than any other film on this list for me, it's a film that celebrates filmmaking. Every single yen is spent making things look good, sound good, and ultimately feeling good. The energy of the whole thing comes directly at the TV to you. To leave us to learn, and we do lots of learning here. There's lots of nice moments regarding the ancestry of the trees and how that relates. An element of fantasy in other places. Hey, it's cinema, why not? Uh, every every film requires an element of that, so I'm certainly not going to be holding it against it, including people being shoved into animals, like we just talked about. So, I really, I really look forward to visiting his past work and his future work, Paul. I really enjoyed the job. I would agree completely, uh, uh, and I think this, I, I can almost say without fear of contradiction from you, it was the most enjoyable film of the year, yeah. that you just sat back, it made you smile, and you thoroughly enjoyed watching it from, from beginning to end. And it was fun, it was funny, it was insightful. It didn't have that extra thing to make it a masterpiece, which which which, which I, I would talk about as... Once we get into my later films, which I think are, or even like Le Petit Quinn, uh, Lil Quinnan. But it is the most entertaining film, I think, of all that we're looking at today and of the ones we've looked at throughout the year. It is a really, and, and it's a different, because I don't want to dim- dismiss entertainment as not having kind of the value of genius, because entertainment is... Is, is, is its own genius. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and this is by far... The most entertaining and enjoyable film of the year. I, I wouldn't take away from that for a second. I think the wonderful performances, the narrative. Uh, I suppose to some extent, what entertainment often does is, is it simplifies things, and so that's where it, where it, where it doesn't become a masterpiece because it doesn't capture that complexity and that kind of ambiguity. This simplifies it so that it's pure entertainment, but it does it. Perfectly. Well, that's fair enough. Let's move on to, uh, and th- this is this is one we've been looking forward to talking about the most, if I'm honest. Uh, Attila Marcel. Now, Attila Marcel is about a mute pianist named Paul who lives with his two aunts. One day, he visits another floor in the apartment where he meets a holistic woman that helps him revisit his childhood memories, enabling him to finally get over the loss of his parents and to grow into a man. This is from Sylvain Chamay, who has made a uh, couple of outstanding animated films. This is his first full-length live-action film. And for me, it's quite a brilliant little thing, actually. It's a well-made product purely for the plot I've already described. But as in his other films, there's a lot more to it than just that. As much as it's a film about characters' childhood memories from 30 years ago in his life, it's more importantly a film about French class and society now. And how it's almost a war between different classes, the demise of the upper class in Paris. And I show this many, many different ways in this film. First of all, obviously, the fact that they're an upper class, almost Baroque gentry family. The woman I've just talked about, the holistic woman, is by herself with her methods, including the growing and eating of vegetables, playing the ukulele, which is a nice contrast to the aunts with their fine dining, always having company around, and the piano is an instrument. And their, in fact, their dance background, which leads me to one of the most interesting scenes of the film, really. It happened really early on. And that is that the two aunts run a Java dance class, which is a form of classical French Baroque dancing. I haven't got a clue what it is still. Uh, where, of course, Paul 
the mute pianist plays the music for them. Uh, it's full of people in the room mocking the dance, calling it old-fashioned, which you'd expect from a, a newer generation, newer, uh, a lesser class, if you will. And then outside, there's a, a, a uh, spray-painted message on the wall saying, Fuck Le Menuet, which just captures this film and what it's supposed to be doing absolutely perfectly. The battle between individualism and cultural collectivism, the death of art, and to the extent the blurring of defined class lines from around people in Paris. The illusionist does it brilliantly with the death of traditional crafts. For example, the illusionist himself is going to be losing his job in a quite a masterful animated film. Here, the death of high art is very much there. From outside, but also within families again. We learn through this film that Paul's parents were killed after cheap shoddy building work from a poorer class of builder, and the piano fell through the ceiling and crushed them. The destruction of the upper class in Paris from within. Really fascinating point of view. From a man who I think who clearly understands his country, his own class, as well as people around him. Really quite an excellent little thing for me. There's also, also comments about sheer numbers of immigrants. There's slights against the Chinese, which comes across in this film, and how they use the music and the piano to kind of have a go at people beneath them and underneath them. Chinese are coming in their swathes and, and language like that. And then, of course, knitting it all together, you've got the chairman of the jury of a piano uh, competition, which Paul is training to be in. And he, again, blurs the lines between the two by saying that you have to be a piece of shit to play the piano, which is an absolutely brilliant sentiment. It looks good. The dream, suite, the dream sequences of his memories have a good vibe to them. I like his use of colour, particularly the vibrancy of those scenes. It sounds good with the original pieces of music co-written by Chamay himself. So, you know, it's undeniably French for me. And I really like that. But probably the most interesting thing of all, I'm going to go back to the Cartier de Cinema magazine, Paul. Mm -hmm. Because they, this hated it. It absolutely despised it. Which, as a more artistic publication, <laughs> you can understand why, because they're seeing it as an attack on them. Whereas <laughs> Le Parisien, less artistic, shall we say. A populist. A more like. populist publication gave this five out of five. So for that to be the case, just fits in perfectly with everything this film sets out to achieve, Paul. Well, given my uh, love of Cathay de Cinema's uh, <laughs> film of the year, I think we can assess, assess where, where I'm, what I'm going to say. I wouldn't disagree with any of what you've said, but the core, pro and it is a problem for me, is that, you know, it's a fairly enjoyable film, a bit too long, but it, you can see that it's made by an animator, and that actually it would have been better if it had been an animation. Because this kind of uh, a kind, it's it's a kind of mix of sentimentalism uh, with a kind of slapstick that that veers uh, between kind of like realism and unrealism suits uh, animation. And I think the fact that he's an animator and it comes from that shows. Uh, and so you're always thinking this would be better than animation. Because the core problem for me is is when you make these kind of things real. A kind of photorealism kind of uh, kind of presentation what they need is is a core of really dark humor in order to work 
And this doesn't have it. What it has at the heart of it is a core of sentimentality, which suits animation much better. And, but I'm not disputing anything you've said about it. Your description of it is perfect. All of its uh, explorations of various things from class, history, music, uh, its wit. It's absolutely... I think it would have been a genius animation. But as a film, it's severely lacking because it it doesn't push the boundaries. It goes over the boundaries of what film is without the darkness to make it a masterpiece. I would say the darkness is there. Uh, for example, in touches. In touches, yes. You've got the frogs who smoke, for example, mm. uh, which links into Attila Marcel, the father, and his kind of... He, he obviously was of a, if you will, a lesser class. Uh, because she was a class, the, the the beautiful woman, beautiful woman, I haven't mentioned that yet, the beautiful woman mother, uh, she was a trained musician, but she decided not to do it. Mm. And Attila Marcel was some sort of a dancer slash actor, uh, a bit dirty, a bit grimy, a bit underhand. He was he was the one that got the, the cheap shoddy builders to do the work, which eventually was the, the demise of themselves and the mental state of the sun. Um, you know, the, the smoking frogs, it's a prime example of darkness, really. It's fairly, and even just a piano coming down like that, and you just sing a pair of feet underneath the piano, that's fairly dark. Um, I, I, I just wish I understood the link to the animation. Because I think in your head, automatically, you know Chamay's background, and therefore you're, you're almost wishing it was. But for me, it's very definitely not an, it's, an animation. It's the sentimentality of it. It's the, it's the heart of it. Is the heart of an But then animator. surely dancing and animated characters can be just as bad for that. Uh, breaking out into song or whatever else. At least have humans do it. Absolutely. No, real. No. There's a lot of bad animation. There. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, I just think... And again, I'm not, it's, not, it's not an unenjoyable film. <clears throat> I, I did quite enjoy it. But it, it, it didn't transcend, like a lot of the other films we are, to put it into that film of the year or even to a masterpiece. And I think if it had been an animation, then it would have. Um, mm. And it's that, it's the, the heart of it. And the heart of it doesn't have, it has the sentimentality of, uh, of animation. It doesn't have that notion of evil that is at the heart of dark films, which is what this tries to be, but can't ever become that. Tourist. But, but Tourist. Tourist. Force majeure. Uh, this, to me, uh, is, is another brilliant film. It's about a family on a skiing holiday in the French Alps who are having lunch on, on the balcony of a place uh, overlooking uh, the side of a mountain and then an, an avalanche starts. And as the, they say, it's, it's sort of over there, you know, no need to worry about it, but it gets closer and closer and closer and then it, it suddenly is going to engulf the entire place where they're having their lunch. And, and the man uh, saves himself at the expense of the family. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do anything to save the family, he just saves himself. It then turns out that it's just not really that much of a problem, then the kind of snowy cloud disappears and they all get back on to uh, their life. Uh, but it, it indicates to the mother of the family that the father, who only had his self-interest at heart, lacks as a man as a person as a family man and then it's about the disintegration of their relationship uh as she constantly can't let it go that he took 
self-interested action and it turns out that it's all filmed on a camera because they were setting up their camera to uh, take some kind of selfies and that captures the whole moment then other guests come to the hotel other friends and they have a meal and then they argue about it then the wife gets out the film and shows them and then there's the split in another relationship about supporting the man or supporting the woman or the family and it's basically then the disintegration of that what more can you say? It is. Uh, and for me, it's the lesser of all the evils on your own list. <laughs> Which is the nicest thing you can say about it, really. <laughs> At least I got to the end of this one, for fuck's sake. <laughs> and to be fair... Which, to, trust me, is rare And to be, it, to be fair, it is a cinematic thing. Yes. The classical music excerpts, which I really think make this stand out amongst... Uh, just it, Even some of the Oscar films, actually, to be honest. I can see why it got to the la- latter stages. But then again, I can also see why it didn't go to the final stage. And we'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, I like the use of the hotel, uh, as a, the lodge rather. Yep. It's quite claustrophobic. Uh, and I just love seeing lodges in the wintertime because it reminds me of The Shining, really, which is great. Uh, but I just thought this film was too restrictive in its content, really. It's fundamental flaw. What I want a film to be is either to be open to interpretation or so focused on one thing that you just buy into the idea. And for me, this film does... Neither. I don't think the characters are very well defined or explored enough for me to agree with the decision she takes to punish her husband for the lie. Now, give me reasons to believe that this lie, because, of course, he gets confronted about it. Why did you... He denies it. He denies it. Now, this is the thing of film. This is the central thing. It's all about the lie. Give me reasons to believe that this lie was the tip of the iceberg that sets off a chain of events. Just like the avalanche riding down the hill, show me... Tell me. It's what the director wants you to believe, Mr. Ruben Usland. But for me, it doesn't happen. And therefore, I cannot back the film. Well, let me interrupt there, because I think it is about... It isn't about buying one way or another. It is about the ambiguity of it. And it is about that that nature of what we'll do in, in a moment. That we don't know what we'll do. And then the the film explores that. And then it ends with a kind of almost a recreation of a scene that the mother sets up yeah. in order for the father to demonstrate that he, he can do it in that moment, despite the fact it's not real. And she concedes to letting him in, having his moment of masculinity in order to save the relationship f- for the nature of the children. And and I think it captures that ambiguity, and it's n- it is non-judgmental but actually quite dark at the same time. So it's talking about it is non-judgmental, but those non-judgmental moments can come back to haunt you in a relationship in your own sense of yourself. And I think it captured that, and I agree with the location, the claustrophobicness, the purity of the pine lodge and and the cleanliness of it and the wood and, and that kind of nature combined with the whiteness of the snow and then the darkness of the evening uh, I think it captured it so perfectly and that it that it did transcend the very kind of location and, and the kind of the banality, in a way, of the narrative to become something greater than its parts. Uh, I, again, I just didn't get the feeling there was any serious history behind it, the characters, anything. Or, it, because what... I'd agree with you. Patriarchal, matriarchal society. This is basically a battle of. Uh, you you pull up in the episode. You know, the, you know, just the overdominant male in this instance, and yet we also see her responding as she does at the end by trying to get that power back. Yep. And we also see her getting her revenge back. 
But all of this just c- comes off kind of just a lie. Yes, at that particular moment, the lie was quite serious. But for me, there needed to be more evidence that this is, was an ongoing issue between the wife and the husband. And for me, it was just a random lie, and a random event, and the whole thing goes off the back of that far, far too much. The extremities of the presentation, for example, there's a lot of sudden noise in this film. And this is this is the thing that I probably got more interest out about than anything. For example, you're on the stairlift, and then it'll suddenly make a really loud bang for no reason whatsoever. But you you kind of almost because of the meandering nature of the narrative, you're expecting things to happen at any time. And this yeah. is a classic tool of filmmaking. This is von Trier stand, always expecting something to happen, and then it doesn't. Um, there's that, a lot of drone bit. Isn't there's, there? a dr- there's drones. There's clanks, and not just the stairlift. All in the hotel. There's even that. Strange kind of mysterious man that kind of wanders about. Indeed. Again, that's just the, sh- the coming back. It must be. It. It, he, Rob, Ruben Uslan must have loved The Shining. It's just too obvious there, uh, which I, I, I least respect him for that. Um, I quite like the last 10 minutes, actually. They are, for me, the most interesting bits of the film by far. But honestly, by then, I just didn't get the importance of what they were arguing about, the importance of the characters. The husband lied, the wife lied some more, then he lied again, and she lied some more. He did his thing, she did hers, secret chats with different people in the hotel. I just, I think this film wanted me to really like the female and to support her quest to get her power back. But I just found them both as bad as each other. And I blame almost exclusively that on the director. <laughs> so, I think you're being very harsh, and because I, th- I, I don't think it did want you to like the woman. I think it wanted you not to like the woman, but actually to understand her point of view. And how she took it to heart. Because I think in relationships that's often what happens. So it's not about the reality. Because in, in fact, nothing happened. That's the whole point. Yeah. It was about the perception of what might happen. And then the feeling of being in it. When in fact, nothing happened. And so, and again, it, it's that, that kind of moment that I think can drive entire relationships. And then entire lives. Uh, one way or another. And I think, uh, you know, force majeure, act of God absolutely perfect i think it was one of the most perfect films of the year it, it, it's unfortunate as it there's a there's one other that tops it but we'll get to that a bit later i'm generally frightened <laughs> and again i'm not surprised because you've shown yourself not to have a clue what you're talking about uh kumiko the treasure hunter kumiko it's a tale about and this is our most recent uh, entrance so we're not going to spend as much time on this because we've just recently talked about it indeed it's a tale about kumiko who believes her purpose in life is to be that of a treasure hunter after she becomes obsessed with the vhs of the film fargo a really excellent little thing this is in contrast to most of the others on this list potentially all of the other films actually i adore the film's simplicity so little dialogue and what often there is is just repeated lines from Comico, I want Fargo. <laughs> I go Fargo. Can we Fargo? So few characters, so often many different uh, same lines. But because of the surrounding quietness, and yet at sometimes loudness, every single thing that gets said carries weight. I'd say most of the time this film is about contrast. You've got the loudness of the soundtrack mixed with her psyche as a slightly mental woman. Uh, mixed with the quietness of her apartment, mixed with the quietness of her office, the VHS versus the DVD, Japanese life versus life uh, in Minnesota. And for me, one thing I didn't mention last time, so this is worth saying now, is that if you if you are a fan of Japanese horror cinema, 
There's a couple of really interesting things in this film that only you'd know. First of all, the pulling of the VHS tape reels out of the TV. Now, she's got a TV that's got a built-in VHS player, we should say, so that's what that's about. Um, so she's the VHS breaks, which is a life-affirming moment for her because she's been obsessed with the thing for quite some time. Um, and the pulling of the tapes out of the machine is basically the connotation of the crazed, evil, long-haired black woman, black-haired woman, I should say, who comes out the TV in a particular well-known Japanese horror series. And I'm almost certain... That's I. Is it? Uh, the Ring. The Ring. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm almost certain that Nobuyuki Katsube and Rinku Kikuchi must have talked about that because it's there. It's right there. Also... How that particular character from that particular horror film series, in some ways, represents this character in this film. Yes, slightly perturbed, but also incredibly focused on one thing. That character wants to get you, she wants to get the treasure. Also, I love the fact that her mother shouts. Actually shouts at her through the phone. And it's not just so we can hear what she's saying. It's also because it fits in with phone calls... From a certain Japanese horror film that's all about receiving phone calls and what it means and that essentially your life will soon be over, which fits in very well with this character and what happens to her. Um, Everybody acts well in it. And for me, in contrast to something like Force Majeure we just talked about, I actually think the underdevelopment of these characters works really well. We know hardly anything about Kumiko. doesn't matter. We don't know anything about the policeman who she who accompanies her on her journey in America. We don't know the reason why he's doing that. We know he's married, but why is he spending so much time? How is he able to spend so much time with her? Don't know anything about that. Doesn't matter. We also don't know about the strange hotel manager in Minnesota. Why why is he not wearing many clothes in a hotel that that's surrounded by snow? Just the fact that he is constantly obsessed with making card payments, and then when she doesn't make the card payment, he doesn't give it a toss. Just an odd looking thing. But a fascinating thing to watch. It does end, and the reason it's not a contender, unlike two or three of the films on this list, is that it does end rather conventionally. It does become quite apparent that she dies, and that she starts to see, she starts to, uh, see things, and that she actually dies from her quest. And that lends the film down a bit, really, for me, because it does promise, it does do little tricks along the way to make you think something's happening. It does do so much different to American cinema uh, that, that we've seen for, for a while, I'd say. Um, and yet it just kind of ends more traditionally. And that's a big shame. Uh, the reality was is that she, she did die. Uh, trying to find this. He died of pneumonia, I think he was, or something. So, that, But here she, she kind of dies, but they pretend she's living. She walks off with a rabbit that she abandoned when she left Japan to go to the thing. So it is a little bit different. It's a little bit more interesting, the ending to what actually happened in real life. So I salute for that. If it just wasn't for that traditional ending, I might be able to uh, say more about this film in a positive manner. However, I'm not going to let it get too serious because just to reach this list, I think is testament enough. As a late entrant, it dominated the week it was in. And generally, I'd say this is a really good visceral treat. I agree, and I think again, it, it's a really good, enjoyable film on the on the kind of darker side of the kind of narrative uh, scenario. Obviously, it's based on a true story yeah. with with distortions on it, which are, which I think work much better. 
Uh, it's written and directed, and, and the policeman is the star. Yeah. Uh, they're David Zellner, and I think I've never heard of him before, and I think it, it's a nice, it's a really good first try. I think it does quite explicitly refer to both Japanese horror and uh, American wilderness movies from A Man Called Horse, Wilderness, Jeremiah Johnson, uh, Clint Eastwood. Uh, there's a whole range of films that I think it refers to, which makes it much more enjoyable. I got a lot more of the American references, and you probably got a lot more of the Indeed. Japanese horror films, because I don't watch them. Bearing in mind, it's an American-Japanese co-production. That, that works remarkably yeah. well. So it did work quite well. It's a little bit too long for me. I didn't mind the conventional ending. You know, she dies, and it, and it gives it a little bit of a kind of surreal push. Uh, I think the... The kind of I think the French call it the mise en scene, the setup of, of actually what you see on what the screen. What is in the scene? Absolutely, <laughs> is is are fantastic. Particularly wandering through the snow, through the wilderness with uh, a quilt cover, which is just you know so reminiscent of almost a, a nomadic kind indeed, of going on, which uh, of fit really Japanese well. yeah. uh, kind of samurai costumes, uh, which is just a, a motel bedspread. Uh, and I, I think it did work exceptionally well. I did enjoy it. It, 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 it had, in a way, uh, coming back to the Attila Marcel, it had the darkness that that lacked, uh, which I think made it a much better film for me. And I love that darkness. And you, so, to, to the extent you knew it was going to end bad, and it did, but that wasn't a problem. It didn't. It didn't uh, transcend your expectations of it. But I think it did it in a very effective. Uh, nice way and but it, it looked good and again i think uh it, the kind of bleakness of of outlook mentality uh kind of culture as well as geography and meteorology yeah. all came together so perfectly i think I, I kind of almost wish there was more in japan because i would i would like to have seen the development of the office thing happened a bit more because those were fantastic scenes. Mm. The tension with because she, she, her mother wants her to be the office, the the, the, the the what the film calls the typical office Japanese girl, yep. being a servant to a man, being married at the age of thirty something, and that's that's what the mother wanted her life to be. Yeah. She was never going to be that, and I would like to have seen a little bit more of those scenes take place because just as things were starting to get a little bit creepy, a bit nasty, potentially a bit perverty, actually. Mm. Um, the kind of the VHS broke, and then she got the DVD, and then she, you know, that everything happened after that. Her having to go to Minnesota, but again, to the drawing of the maps and, and little touches like that, even the use of the film Fargo in this, mm. just had a really, really, really interesting and original idea, um, which I think actually blends quite nicely to uh, it follows. Which is about a girl who gets possessed by an evil force after she contracts it after a sexual encounter. For me, this film survives as an art piece because it isn't about what you see. It's about what you don't see. Or at least what the film doesn't want you to see so much, just hidden away in the corner. I love what this film has to say about teenage life, young adult issues, and how the lack of a family unit, as is in most cases in American cinema, is absolutely fundamental. And there are plenty of interesting cinematic subtle hints about how these situations have come to pass. You see empty bottles shine briefly in the corner of a parent's bedroom. There's references to self-harming, excessive drug use, whatever. Whatever the reasons, the family unit is attacked from within or indeed from outside that and this film explores it. American cinema has always been about this, I think it's fair to say. But this year, more than ever, actually, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting to see how that's developed. 
It is ultimately, however, a horror film, which holds it, again, for you against it, but for me, probably a bit for it as well, obviously, uh, which I love, others don't, that's fine. But one of those, it, for, one, for one of those things, either as an art piece or a horror film, it does retain some originality through Thick and Thin. It's a beautifully shot film as well for me, and the fact, and the fact that the director of photography has just been working with M. Night Shyamalan on his next film, that really, really intrigues me. The poor Cause, bloke. Because he is a highly talented young DOP. And there are lots of slow pannings, beautiful shots of scenery, just shots that mean something, even when there's nothing happening in the film. So, again, in both camps, either the horror one for me or the art piece for somebody else, it's got a message to say and it says it more maturely, more than any American film. Uh, targeted at the same audience, might I add, uh, for, for a long time, actually. It's a refreshing change from the easier route of most films saying, do what the fuck you want and don't worry about the consequences because it's cinema. Here, it says, do what you want, but just think about what you're doing and <laughs> please look after your family and be with your family. It's very important. So it follows for me was a really pleasant surprise and I will be checking out David Robert Mitchell's future work and also his past work because it's a subject that he's touched on before in a different way he's, he's done a, he actually has done a kind of a, a road trip in a I, think, I believe to be a, sen, a semi-animated style so something different from him now and then so uh, I think it could be a name to watch out for if he carries on making films that mean something like this does mm. I I enjoyed it but uh, I'm not a horror fan, and and equally, I, I didn't think it was as original as it thought it was. I think there's lots of films of the kind of late 60s, early 70s pseudo-horror films coming out of things like Twilight Zone, all of those that are, are much more meaningful than the, the kind of what you're seeing, uh, and that, that notion of, of the unknown supernatural forces, which, which I've always had difficulty buying into anyway. Yep. Uh, so I do have a problem with that. So, but but it was it was a well constructed and I think it was a well made cinematic film. The look of it yeah. was perfect, and I think the DOP and and I hope he can raise M Night Shyamalan above his usual level of dross. Even though you love the visits, uh, well, that's what I was going to come on to actually, because I think what what this lacked for me was humour, and I think the best horrors that I like have a degree of humour, be it both out, outright humour or, or sometimes even slapstick or even dark humour. And I think uh, the film of my week when we did this was The Visit, which was M. Night Shyamalan's, because it had those additional elements yeah. that this didn't. But again, I think because you're a connoisseur of this and so you're looking for those different things... Uh, so I can see why you liked it. And I did enjoy it, don't get me wrong. And I think it was it was a wonderfully constructed and, and delivered product. But it's just not something that I'm particularly into. And it'll be interesting to see the kind of future films he makes and whether he sticks to a particular kind of uh, genre or whether he, he moves beyond that. Because I think if he moves into other areas but keeps the expertise of this and some of the core people in it, I think he it, it could be... He is one to watch. Yeah, definitely. And also, the, the, the casting uh, director needs a lot of praise because you can tell that all these kids get on. Yep. And not only, but, but, but very professional. These are, these are not your average teenage American actors. Mm. They're not particularly outstanding looking. The, the, the lead actress is quite a beautiful woman, I would think. Or, or at least a, a late teen. Uh, 
I, I, I just like there's no pretense with these casts. There's no stereotypes that these kind of cast hit, uh, and particularly the 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 young lad who her, her best friend, the one who's been afflicted with this disease, with this supernatural force. The disease, uh, call it a disease because that's essentially what we're talking about here. Yep. Um, he wants to help her out, which sounds fair enough. He would want to get that thing out of her system, if you will. However, what are the reasons why? Is it is he doing it out of love, or is he doing it just because he wants to fuck her? Hmm. And little things like that are always in the background. It's not there if you want it, but if you want it, it's there. So yes, definitely agree. David Robert Mitchell. It, and this is this has got some success. It went. It, I think it did well, quite well at Cannes. And this films like this nowhere near. Well, I think it got a mainstream uh, British well. cinema release, didn't it? Did it did indeed. Which I think shows you that actually a, quite a lot of people really rated it, and it, and it did tap into that that kind of genre in a way that that made it very appealing. So he, you, you would think that he's going to retain some autonomy for his next thing. He's going to be able to do work with who he wants to work with within a, within a certain budget, obviously. So yeah, I agree. Let's see what he's got next. Yep, should be really interesting. Phoenix. Phoenix. Phoenix uh, is a German film about. I know it's going to be your film. Yep, you? which is a disfigured concentration camp survivor played by Nina Hoss, who we've seen in quite a few other films. Every bloody put, German film ever, which we've reviewed. She's also in Homeland at the moment as well, but that's crap. Uh, so she has <laughs> uh, facial reconstruction surgery because she gets uh, shot in the head. Uh, and and she then once she's had that she goes to look for her her former husband who may or may not have betrayed her to the Nazis in the first place. Uh, Christian Petzold uh, is the director writer, and this is a true masterpiece. Not even close of of kind of European global cinema that transcended anything of the entire year. Transcended nothing. Because I think it was a wonderfully constructed film. I think it was very cinematic. It explored... Quite miserable. ...a very uh, regular subject, the Second World War, the Holocaust, all of those kind of things. Done better elsewhere. But did something very different with it. I think we can tell that. (laughs) Theo's not a fan of it. And then it plays with the idea of post-war Germany through the fact that her husband doesn't recognise her but wants her to be the woman of uh, who was his wife so that he can exploit her. So it explores gender roles, it explores identity roles, it explores the notion of national identity uh, about what we are. Do we want to be what we used to be or are we going to kind of like try and wipe out what we did, uh, kind of memory. It plays with all of those kind of notions and it is truly a masterpiece of the year. Not the worst film on the podcast. (laughs) It really isn't. But it's by far and away the most ridiculous and pointless. And that's saying something because of Petit Kanka. Indeed, given how you hate it, don't woman, A woman, sorry, gets told that her face is going to be totally different. She agrees to the surgery. She understands it, and she then spends 30 minutes of the film trying to get her ex-partner back. Fair enough. If it was five minutes, maybe if it was ten minutes. But to keep doing it again and again and again for half an hour, I do not have the time to sit there and watch such a stupid idea executed pointlessly. Especially, and this is probably the point that really matters, 
especially since the faceless love thing has been done thousands of times before. Better, more meaningful. God knows where you got all that from because I didn't. Well, and then again, I didn't even get that far to explore anything else. Uh, but let me just say there, I think, you know, it has been done before, that kind of facial thing, but this transcends that, and that's what makes this a masterpiece, because it's not about the face, it's about what we are both individually, uh, collectively, and nationally, and that's why it transcends it, because it transcends, because it is a fairly regularly used narrative, uh, yep. Fran Jews, I've forgotten what it's called, the mask or whatever, the, the, the new face. There is nothing new in that. And that's why this is so good, because it uses that, and again, the Holocaust, we see these films all the time, but it transcends all of them to be about something bigger and actually explores that in, in a way that I've not seen done before, which made it brilliant. Can't agree 1%, because if it's not about the face, why does she spend half an hour trying to get her ex-husband back with a new face? It's all about the face. It's, it's about the trans- past and the present, you know, what we were, what we did, what we, as both individuals as a nation. No. But again, if you don't, if you don't buy into you that... You need to get over that. If you don't buy into that, you're going to think it's shit. Indeed. And you didn't, so you thought it was I, shit. That is, that is literally... And that's fine. I would hope most people also would struggle to get over that because it's a fairly fundamental thing not to get over. <laughs> and I, I am within my reason not to get over this major contradiction. It just doesn't work in any way. Timbuktu. <laughs> now, this is, uh, by, my, by my reckoning, Paul, this is, and this is the interesting point, even though we have looked at all the Oscar language films... Mm. Well, not all of them because the list is like 100 and fucking god million. All uh, of the shortlists, let's yeah. say. We've seen all of the jammy shortlist onwards. Yeah. We've you had your favourite, which was Corn Island. Yeah. Which is not on this list. Mm. I had my favourite, which was Leviathan, which is not on this list. Mm. But what we've done anyway is that we've come together and decided, quite rightly in my opinion, if you'd please introduce us to Timbuktu, Paul, that this was actually a bloody good film as well. Yeah, basically, it's it's the story of a kind of nomadic uh, cattle herder who goes to get his cattle and he ends up killing someone who's trying to steal it. Uh, And then that person goes on trial. But it's at the same time, the kind of very kind of restrictive jihadist uh, Muslim fundamentalists are taking control of the country that it's set in, Mauritania. And and then it becomes that battle between kind of justice, tolerance, fundamentalism, and then sub-stories of, of kind of people living in a kind of Western kind of way and other people living in a more fundamental way. Then there's stuff thrown in there about uh, the kind of attitude towards women by male fundamentalists of what women's role is. You know, they want the wife, they say, well, I'll have her, and they go and get her, and it becomes repressiveness. And but actually, what is so good about this is that in a way it doesn't. It sounds quite an odd thing. It doesn't judge. It sort of de- depicts them as they are. Indeed. So it doesn't overly evilify them to use a kind of a non-existent word. <laughs> it just has them do what they do, uh, and compared with what the Westernized kind of people in that community do, and and then it's the conflict the kind of the negotiations by all of the characters through that kind of labyrinth of kind of humanity. Definitely. Yeah. And it's really unlucky that he didn't walk away with the main prize as far as I'm concerned. I got, I got things out of Leviathan that were very personal to me. Yeah. 
because it dealt with a few religious things that were more in tune with what I have been taught and that kind of thing. And also there was more humour in that than this. Although there is some humour in this, which is which you know we'll come on to. Indeed. Um, and you know, Corn Island that had a bit more existentialism about it and the meaning of life and that kind of thing, which is what you're, you like a lot of. Fair enough. But all the things you've said about Timbuktu are absolutely correct. And it, it just fits in so perfectly with what is happening now. Yep. It, it, for that reason alone, it deserves to be on this list. Never mind the actual quality of the film. And as you said, you know, this is a neutral film. And whilst for most films, neutrality is kind of frowned upon, and I'm, I'm one of those, you know, perpetuants of that who wants, who wants an opinion from the director and then I can disagree with it or, or agree with it. This is actually Abdurrahman Sisaka, who is well decorated. He's had lots of success. Uh, he's, a, he's an experienced hand. He takes the time to explain both sides, but he doesn't do it in a slow... It's an only an hour and a half film. Indeed. Hour and 40. And there's so much going on here. Not just the locals, but also, as you say, the militant Islamists get their point of view and their chance to show it. The logic behind their beliefs, as well as the contradictions that they both accept on each side, which is presented quite skillfully. Quite skillfully. None better for me than two scenes in particular. First of all, I love the spiritual woman in this film. She's kind of like Miss Queen Africa, Miss Spiritual Africa. She's wearing she's wearing not very much, which of goes against the obviously the militant point of view, yep. particularly for women. For example, the women have to wear gloves even if the fishmongers, which doesn't help them hold the fish very well. But that's what they have to do. Again, contradiction, but also the logic behind their beliefs and that women should be covered at all times. Um, now, the fact that this spiritual woman again wears very little. But she's liked by both sides, and she's allowed to do what she wants. And you can understand why the militants would like her, because she's a beautiful woman. And you can understand why the locals would like her, because she is one of them. She's her, she's, she adds, she's the, her representation to those people that will not talk to the mere peasants. So there's lots, lots going on in that particular one scene. But also, better than that, one of the great political scenes of our times. This says, this says more than any documentary we've watched on any war anything at all the quite masterful scene of the children playing with an imaginary football the islamists rushing out to stop them playing because they don't know it's an imaginary football get on their motorbikes they go over there in their swathes to stop them playing and then they drive away almost immediately when they realize that the ball doesn't actually exist Mm. and that is just such a masterful scene probably the best scene of the entire year Fascinating, interesting at times, draw-dropping in others, with a beautiful cinematographer. Of course, in its favour is the fact that it's Mauritania. <laughs> There's lots of sun, it's desert, everything's bright and clean and, yep. and all that. It ain't Birmingham, that's it for sure. Ain't. It certainly isn't. Um, so, <laughs> what else can you say about that, really? It is just a quite brilliant film. And this, I think we've established, Paul, this would have been a worthy winner. There's logic behind Wild Tales doing it. There's logic behind basically any of the ones that could have won. The, one, yep. the wrong one did. And uh, I just feel bad that I didn't really watch Sisako's films beforehand, really. But this is a gateway. I think I'll be checking out his other work because this is this is quite a masterful little thing. Indeed, indeed. So, uh, decision time, Paul. I know where you're going to go. Are you really going to try and justify yet again why Phoenix is a masterpiece? <laughs> uh, I am. Uh, Phoenix is the film of the year for me, I think. It transcends the very being of itself in a way that the others don't. But what the if others, it's about nothing. Uh, <laughs> How can you transcend nothing, Paul? But except it's about so much. 
uh, and it transcends its genre, its narrative, uh, and all of those kind of things, which the others all do very well. Even some of the films I don't like, it follows, does it very well, but it doesn't transcend it. Phoenix does, and that's why, to me, it's the, the film of the year by far. And for me, by far, it's Woodjob. I would say it's, by a considerable distance, unquantifiable distance, the most complete film on this list. There is something for absolutely everybody in this film. I think it's a great accomplishment to be such an upwardly positive thing, but kind of rain down on the sentimentality. Yes, it's there, of course it is, because it's, there's happiness, there's childhood, there's, there's, you know, there's memories of trying to move on. All this stuff, you're naturally sentimental things, but it never gets tied down by that. But as you alluded to, it's just superb fun. Yep. It's made with a smile. Riding a massive log through a vaginal-shaped haystack. Just great. As for purely personal reasons, you've got yours for Phoenix. <laughs> My personal reasons for this, aside from that scene, there's a scene where he's in the middle of the ceremony, climbing up the mountain with the torches and all the rest of it. Uh, he's in the middle of that which leads to the moment that I've just mentioned, he receives a phone call from his mother who's still in the city. So he rushes halfway down the mountain. It's already, it's already been a bit of a, a trek for him to get where he was, but he rushes down the mountain, obviously therefore assuming, and the, and the, and the assumption is that it's, a, it's an emergency call. So he rushes back down the mountain, picks up the phone, and it just ends up being something trivial about what food he wants when he gets back, when he finally returns home. That struck a chord with me immediately as it, as, it, uh, as it kind of permeated into a reality for me when I was doing what I was doing at the, end of the, at the beginning of 2015, working in a different country. So that was a direct experience that I would also assume that uh, the director had himself maybe at some point. I got that straight away. Uh, but going back to the bigger and more important picture, the film ends with Yuki returning home because he realised it wasn't for him anymore. And what he decides to do is he leaves a jar of alcohol. He then decides, actually, I, have to, I actually am going to go back to the forest. And what he does, he leaves a jar of alcohol outside the door of the apartment where his parents live in a really dull, boring block of flats. And I just adore that sentiment. All you city dwellers can carry on fucking drinking yourselves to death. I'm off to help preserve the country's future with a smile on my face. Just perfect. I've got to be honest, it's been a challenging year on the podcast for me. Because as soon as I saw this film, I had a sneaking suspicion that nothing would beat it. For both the personal reason that I've mentioned, and indeed, just for the whole thing as, a, as in general. One or two came close. They did. And I must, Phoenix. Uh, <laughs> Phoenix was about as close as I am to flying to the moon. Uh, which is to say never. Um, but I've got to say, I really enjoyed Really enjoyed The Mule. Re that was probably either number two or number three for me. Runga had the emotional ma manipulation that I fell hook, line and sinker to. But ultimately, Woodjob is my champion this year. And I want people to go and see it. Absolutely. It's a really good film. And, and, and I think what, what's different about it, particularly for a lot of the films we've talked about, this is for the whole family. Everybody can enjoy this yeah. film. It isn't like, you know, you haven't got to be an intellectual, you, you know, you haven't got to know a genre, you haven't got to, 
kind of like certain groups, you know, might be scared or whatever. It, it is for everyone, and it's a cracking film. And it, and it really does teach you everything. If you if you weren't if you're not an intellect like us, too, of course, absolutely. Who knows what Japanese society? A couple of half wits. Or exactly, but we spent most of that half learning about Japanese cinema through absolutely. only through visiting the films, not absolutely. the country itself. And this one again does that if you're brand new to it. Then watch this. Watch then, like Father, like Son, a story of Yonas Gay. All those films. These, are, as far as I'm concerned, we are in a truly blessed era of Japanese cinema. Indeed. They might think different because they might not be making that much money there. But God, we're getting some fantastic pieces of art. Now then, what are you going to recommend? And and my, my first question is, Paul, do you think this has been a good year for cinema? I do. I think I've enjoyed uh, the vast majority of what we've reviewed. And I think uh, even other cinema I've quite enjoyed. There's been a couple of really awful moments, uh, usually involving... Normally from Germany, really. Uh, no, I would say <laughs> normally involving uh, Kirsten Scott Thomas, Kristen Scott Thomas, <laughs> and uh, Mulligan. What's her name? Oh, Kerry Mulligan. Kerry Mulligan. Uh, yes. Not Kirsten Scott Thomas. I quite like her. Kerry Mulligan. I will do my utmost to Matthias never, show notes as well. never watch a film that she is in again. <laughs> I like him, and she brings him down to her level. Uh, so, uh, But otherwise, I think, you know, even the, virtually all the films we've done on the podcast, there's been very few duffers. I think, I think, it's, I think in terms of the Oscar nominations, I think it's for, world, for foreign language cinema, yeah. even though only one of them made it onto this list, there have there. I think, generally speaking, the spread of quality has been greater this year. Absolutely. I think, for example... All right, we don't agree on Force Majeure at all, but I do see that as a quality product, mm. and I do see why it made it to the January shortlist. Mm. And certainly at the expense of Ida, it should have been on there, because it's just as cinematic as Ida, if not more so. Absolutely. And that's pretty much all they rewarded that film for being, mm. really. Yes, mm. you know, Jews mm. and all the rest of it, but <laughs> that's, that's a nice summonation of history just right there. Absolutely. But, but generally speaking, ones that we haven't... Even things like um, Accused, Lucy B. Decent film, quality little thing. Charlie's Country. Charlie's Country, interesting. Again, we didn't quite agree on eye to eye on that, but again, a really interesting piece. Just all the way through the year, and this is what I would say actually. You must see, you must take this list as gospel because otherwise, what the fuck is the point? Mm -hmm. But a lot of our number twos, in other weeks, they would have been number ones. Yep. There's a lot of luck involved with these kind of things. You know, um, even little things, little odd little quirk things like the police officer's wife, three hours, lots of fading to black. You're not going to see anything like that ever again. Indeed. Uh, Je m'appelle, um, and even some of your little more oddball ones you've mentioned over the year. Quentin de Peur, for one thing. Just really, really interesting. And, it, and, and I must say, there's quite a bit of English language here on this list. I agree. And so there are, there are some good, up and coming, young, or a little, worse, middle aged American directors who have grown up watching some shit and they want to get things better. I think the only, the only thing, and, and again, we've touched on it slightly, but one of the core things to say is, is that there's very little decent British cinema, uh, particularly if it involves Kerry Mulligan. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're, we, I don't think we've done that much and we rarely ever think, yeah, let's do that. Uh, and I think that, 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 that's a real tragedy and I hope that gets better because I know that like one of the big uh, Oscar things is yeah. is 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 possibly British. Was he involved Eddie Redmayne again? It, well, not that one. I was thinking more the Tom Hardy one where he oh, played right. for two roles, uh, the the Cray Twins thing, which is a British film. Uh, but 
I just hope that so, there's some decent stuff pops up because it it rarely does. No, I, I, yeah, you, you might think it's just us deliberately ignoring English language cinema and therefore by definition British. Uh, but there, there, there's just nothing. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you know what happens is, well, for me anyway, there's a massive list of films and uh, stuff that I personally want to see, and then at random things happen, and uh, we, we we get reviewed, and then some things miss out. Uh, and, and the interesting thing is, is British people or British involvement is often core in a lot of them. For example, Ida. Ida, the filmmaker there, learned all of his craft and practice in Britain and, and was funded by the British Film Institute in the past and whatever. He's gone back to Poland as, 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 and he's, done, he's won the Oscar. So, And a lot of the kind of technical staff on a lot of the other films that we see are really good. Even big entertainment things are really good. But you, you, we just don't see that British film where you think, yeah, you know, it's just not It means something real. Absolutely. Well... As I've said, you know, from the randomness of the way that I contribute films to this podcast, things do miss out. And now it's time where we are going to nominate one film each that we haven't reviewed on the podcast that we've seen in our own little lives outside of this bloody thing. <laughs> where we're going to obviously make a recommendation. And funnily enough, Paul, and this is why I wanted to bring that conversation around to that end, mm-hmm. we have a British film here. Indeed. Uh, by British director. Mm-hmm. Except it's not, but the reason it's good is because it's actually not British. The Duke of Burgundy, I'm going to recommend, is my one film. And uh, I've got to say, I would probably have had... If the look would have been more favourable and the disc would have arrived before another disc, I would have made room for this on the final list. I really would have done. Uh, the Duke of Burgundy is Sidsy Babette Knudsen. Who we all know from Who Borgen. we all know as the sort of beautiful woman. From Borgen. From Borgen. Indeed. And it also stars Chiara Anna, who definitely is a beautiful woman. And these two are two, and here we go, these two, and don't, don't jump down, I, could, I know your reaction's going to be to this. No, no. I, I'm, <laughs> oh, indeed, the listeners are going to be thinking, yeah, you've been talking about beautiful women all the week. But this film is about two lesbian lepidopterologists. For the unaware... They're stamp collectors, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's some stamping that goes on, but it's nothing to do with stamps. Uh, two lesbian lepidopterologists, which is for those of you for the, for the uninitiated, and why are you uninitiated on this fascinating subject? <laughs> the study of moths and butterflies, particularly the structure of the body of them. Cynthia, who is Borgen, if you will, is the lecturer, and Chiara de Anna is the student, Evelyn, who is also Cynthia's maid. Cynthia is obviously more older. Uh, is it the older of the two being a lecturer as opposed to a student and they keep each other entertained sexually with various forms of role play writing notes to each other different forms of torture that kind of thing but she Cynthia starts to show her age or rather her body does and Evelyn starts to have more fantasial ideas about a younger woman now the reason I say this is a British film which it is and a British director who goes by the name of Peter Strickland who is by far probably my favourite British director at the moment, is that he actually doesn't make British films. Mm-hmm. This is Eurosleaze, a tribute to late 80s or mid-80s Spanish cinema that was all about women having sex and things that were happening around women having sex. This film has got a real style to it, and this is why I like him. One of his other films, uh, Barbican Sound uh, Studio, I think it was called, starring Toby, Toby Jones. Barbarian. Barbarian, who... Um, Toby Jones, he could he could actually film himself having a shit. 
Indeed. And it'd be good enough for me. Indeed. Uh, so therefore, that was great. And then one before that was about Romanian Gypsy again. Very, very interesting. He's, he's quite he's middle-aged. He hasn't done that many films. But what he does always has style, sophistication. And again, he is one of the most interesting British directors in circulation by far. And I'm just really disappointed we didn't get time to talk about it on the podcast. The imagery of the animals, the moths, the, the, the butterflies, everything. All of that mixed with the connotations that has with the female part of the genitalia. Really interestingly shown. Not the genitalia, the animals, folks. The light and the shade in every single scene. There's grubbiness, there's grime, but there's also fantastical lights. Lots of mirrors for reflections. Really interesting visual treat this is. The fantasy mixed with the seedness works very, very well with the era it's trying to replicate. Again, the moths, the butterflies, and how even their calling calls are used to turn each other on, and the links, obviously, with the real characters trying to turn each other on as well. For me, if I could sum this film up, it would be The Handmaid's Tale. Mixed with Fifty Shades of Grey, if the latter had even an ounce of intelligence to it, and actually was about more than just sex, because this has got, got a lot more to it than that. Mm. As a piece of art, it's my favourite film of the year by a distance. And as I've alluded to, as some of the films on this list have been art pieces, this, as an art piece, is better than all of them. So I would, I'm, again, I'm just really disappointed that I let Rand, I let Luck take its part and that we didn't have time to, for this disc to arrive and therefore us to talk about it. Because it is, by far, the best British film I've seen since we need to talk about Kevin. It is just a quite brilliant thing. Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, I must admit, I haven't watched it, but again, I know about it, and it's interesting that actually it's someone who's steeped in European cinema, yeah. and a bit like, uh, let's talk about Kevin, maybe British, but it's steeped in American culture, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that's what's so good about it. And I shall be watching it. Yes, and if uh, if and when he, a new one comes out from him, uh, I'm going to fuck luck and we're going to do it. <laughs> I am not missing out again. Now, Paul... <laughs> Which one are you going to recommend? Well, I'm going to go for Bridge of Spies. And I know that's a late entry in 2015, having just come out in the last few weeks. Uh, but actually, it's a, a British film about the Cold War, about set in Berlin, the, the going up of the Berlin Wall. And an American lawyer is uh, charged with uh, defending a spy in America who uh, is accused of spying, played by Mark Rylance, which is excellent. And it, basically it's a Cold War film, and I think, again, it's a very personal thing to me. My entire life was the Cold War, uh, kind of the epitome. I think the Berlin Wall went up just after I was born. And how he defends this person, everybody wants him to be executed. Tom Hanks, the all-good guy American, says, let's not execute him because you may need to... Uh, exchange in the future then something happens which is Francis Gary Powers which bizarrely I remember in real life and so then an exchange plate takes place that's organised by this American lawyer because often the states can't be overtly involved in this it has to be done through kind of surreptitious subversion kind of anonymous people and so it moves from the trial of the Ameri of the uh, spy in America to the transfer in Berlin, and uh, it's just it does what it says on the tin, yeah. and it does it perfectly. It's a very long film. It has touches of humour. 
It's uh, co-written by the Cohen brothers, which gives it that kind of an extra bit yeah. that takes it out of being the usual... Just a Spielberg film. Just a Spielberg <laughs> film, absolutely. So it's not overly sentimental. It has sentimental does moments. Does it zoom out of panther violins at the end? It does indeed. Oh, fuck it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to watch it until you said that. <laughs> but of course... Uh, <laughs> But it does what it does on the tin, and it yeah. does it better than it usually does it. Oh, okay. Uh, and I think that Tom Hanks is an affable guy. There's, it takes out some of the more uh, reality of the facts because it's based on a true story. Oh, I hate that. Uh, that uh, that might not make it as kind of heroic as it as it is. It is terribly American, but it's in a it's a film about American that does American best yes and and it believes in that stands up for its beliefs in justice and honesty and you know that you know states don't work like that and that nobody really believes it but there's lots of hidden gems of critique of american culture so it's anti-torture it's anti the death penalty and and it's very liberal, as you say, and tolerant. A fictional piece, indeed. <laughs> but it, it and, and, but in a way, that's what you you love about it yeah, so much that it's it's not real. It's based on reality. The distortions make it about hope and positivity. And equally, I you know I grew up on spy films. I grew up in the spy era. You know, even from the Ipcress file. And in a way, it, it's a kind of version of the Ipcress file. Uh, it, which is actually quite interesting, uh, if you think about it in that kind of way. And and everybody performs well. Mike Rylance is brilliant. Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks. Alan Alder and then everyone down the cast list. And the fact that it's written by the Coen brothers gives it that extra yeah. little bit of humour and nuance and depth that makes it... It's just a cracking little film. I, I will watch this because... I well, th- it's going to win all the Oscars. I think. It, I think. It, I, I agree. <laughs> I really think it's going to go all guns. It's going to win at least. Yeah. I think. I think. We're on, I think we're on due for another Spielberg win. Yeah. Individually, yeah. but I also think. I also think it's going to be best film. Yeah. And of course, we know that Tom Hanks will be nominated for actor as well, which may happen. So I'm potentially three Oscars for this film. Well, I think Even writers. I seen it yet. Uh, Mark Rylance for supporting actor. Oh, screenplay. That's for absolutely. So, so is it adapted screenplay or? Uh, no, screenplay? I think it's original. So original screenplay. That's four. So potentially four. Yeah. Uh, definitely at least two. Absolutely. And the, like, cinematography, because again, you've got that American yeah. kind of uh, small townville, yeah. uh, as well as the kind of cold, bleak, miserableness of Berlin. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I. I, I It'll be up there for a lot of them. Yeah, there, there is something there is something satisfying about Hollywood done well, really. Yes. The issue is is that most Hollywood paints itself as doing well when it actually doesn't. Absolutely. And media would have you believe that it's done well, but it hasn't. Yeah. Like I did with Birdman last year, I watched the film that I thought would run away with things because I don't want to be totally uh, excluded from it. And whilst Birdman really was an overrated piece of shit, uh, the, and this may well be, but I shall, I shall at least, again, I shall see it and, and have a look. Uh, last thing, Paul, mm-hmm. what are you looking forward to next year? What am I looking forward to next year? I think probably the next film by the guy who did Phoenix. Oh. <laughs> uh, no. that, that's on the assumption that it's actually going to be allowed on the podcast. <laughs> no, I, I think I'm looking forward just to some more great cinema. I think I, I tend not to look that far ahead and it just sort of comes to me. I think... Uh, yeah, more films by the people that we we know and love that we've done before. I think there's some yes, interesting the uh, period, perhaps, Japanese, Chinese films 
on the horizon that look really interesting as well. There is indeed. Well, the, 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 for me, there's an awful lot to look forward to, actually. Uh, we, we, as we said we were going to do, we will look at Eddie the Eagle. Indeed. Because the trailer's come out and it just looks a little bit interesting. Uh, there's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. That's right. Which I remember we talked gonna, about that. Which should be fun, if nothing else, Indeed. at least for a bit, at least in part. One thing again: little things come out in the cinemas. They get a limited room, and I get a chance to see them to come out on discs. Lots of those. Crimson Pit from Del Toro, who's really got a point to prove. Oh, I hate Del Toro. Indeed. So and we'll review that one. We'll review indeed. Uh, Lanthimos is back with the Lobster, and that's his first English language film. We'll do that again on disc. Little thing for me: uh, Michael Franco's first English language film. He's a Mexican director. Big fan of him. His first English language film, Chronic, again, should be on disc because we didn't get it in cinema at all. Hopefully, Lisa Ashan's next film is going to be coming out on disc for us from Sweden, The Director of She Monkeys, which was a masterpiece. Another English language film from the first English, English language film from Matteo Garoni, the director of the Gomorrah documentary from Italy, Tale of Tales. Toby Jones is in it. So even, I know you hate fairy tales, but Toby Jones is in it, so that'll be fine. As for foreign language, we are due. Okita-san, who made Yonosuke. And we are also due Karida-san, who made Like Father, Like Son. And of course, the pièce de résistance will be the story of uh, Schmeichel in goal for Denmark ah. in uh, 1994. You're a 92. You're a 92. In Summer and 92, which... Wow. Uh, That'll be the football film, given that it is uh, Euro 16. And there's a lack of football films this year. So Indeed. We'll have, we'll have to, again, try and maybe get some of those on. And that links me very nicely to the film that I'm really looking forward to. The next Winterberg film is very nearly upon us, sooner than you think, actually. And it will be brilliant because he's gone back to Denmark again. That's what I like to hear. Indeed. Because, in fact, Kerry Mulligan was in his last film, Indeed. if I remember rightly. And it was... And you know, was shit. All of Winterberg's non-Danish films are shit. And all of his Danish ones are not shit. So, you know, how exciting is that? It's about it's about a commune and, and lots of things happening. It's actually coming in January next year. Is it? So, oh, and of course, uh, anything with Mads Mikkelsen in. Uh, I've got a sad disappointment not in it. But, again, it will be... It'll be in something. It'll be in something. <laughs> as long as it's not American, again. <laughs> Uh, but how exciting! Winterberg will be back. He obviously wanted. To, he wanted to. He got his money for doing the really strange, peculiar attempt. Thomas Hardy Indeed. thing, which I can't remember what it was called. Well, he's moved on to slightly better oh, things as well. God, just, just bizarre. Awful. Anyway, Winterberg's back. We've got all those names you just mentioned. Lot to look forward to. As indeed there is on the podcast, because between now and awards season, I've compiled. Uh, we've compiled a couple of best ofs just to keep you ticking over. Things that you have heard us talk about before that we think are worth revisiting for your listening pleasure. But also, going back to the first year of the podcast, because we like to look back, of course we do, but we don't like to force people to have to scroll down dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes to look back. So we've, comp- we've also kind of compressed the first year of the podcast down to the most interesting bits, really. We've got all sorts on there. So that'll keep the podcast ticking over until late January, February 2016. Until then... And we will speak to you then. Have a happy new year and we'll see you on the other side.